I mean, all, all we seek is an open playing field for U.S. companies to compete, right? And we are, we are confident, and we've seen this time and time again, when, when that open playing field is available, uh, the technology and ideas and, and uh, innovation and uh, life cycle costs of American companies often win the day. Not always, of course, uh, but we believe competition is a good thing uh, as long as it, it, it's uh, open. And we, we have seen it be very, very open here in Saudi Arabia, which is great. This is the 966. This is the 966 episode 80. Mr. Richard Wilson, hello, awesome. milestone again for us. How are you? Love, love those big round numbers. Yep, big round numbers. Although it's weird because last week we had three special guests, so it felt like three more episodes, but um, we're all about yeah. efficiency here at the 966, so it was a really good you're, one. You're, you're, more, you're, you're more tuned to the proper protocol because I was going, why can't this be like, you know, three different episodes and we can count them? But of course, when you... When you load them up, especially on, on Transistor for the podcast, all the podcast platforms, it's just one. So I know you're, you're putting that in. But yeah, I was hoping we could get a nice little bump there. Well, we've got you got to be able to set your watch to 966. And so we, we keep the styling together, especially for the audio podcast listeners, our, our sort of largest base. But um, yeah, you can watch each of the conversations on YouTube, of course, with Fahad Nazar. Uh, Dr. Aziz Al-Gashayan and Dr. John Alterman, just really cool three perspectives on the Saudi Iran deal. So like if you missed it last week, um, if there's any chance you missed it last week after we've been talking about it so much, it's just so good. They're all so good. So give that a listen. This week, Richard, we're back to our normal format. We'll be talking about the recent U.S.-Saudi deal with Riyadh Air and Boeing, which we didn't get to provide some thoughts on since we were both in Saudi Arabia when it was announced. Yeah. Um, and we'll be Same. hearing from Richard about his adventure to Al-Ola and talking a little bit about our recent tra traveling experiences to Saudi Arabia. Richard, I'm so stoked to hear about that, which we'll get to in one second. Before we get going, please hit that little plus button on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're getting this audio podcast or on YouTube. If you subscribe to us, it helps us out. We would appreciate that, Richard. Shall we? Smash! I'll what's, smash. Your, what's your one big thing this week? Uh, the the Alula venture, and you you mentioned it. It would have been better if we could have done it together because and 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 this was I, I felt sort of like uh you know you because you were going to take a run at it and and it didn't work out. And uh, I think it might be curious to our listeners because you probably heard a lot about Alula. I mean, as part of Saudi Arabia's uh, significant tourism push. Um, you know, what is it? Can you get to it? What's it like when you get there? And my experience actually might be useful because it wasn't a luxe experience. I mean, I decided that I needed to, I needed to get to Riyadh and, and uh, Jeddah like in mid-February. And I needed to do it before, I wanted to do it before Ramadan. So we're talking March. So, so anyway, so I, you know, I hadn't, and, and then, you know, I'm going, okay, if I'm going from Riyadh to Jeddah, I might as well try to get to Alula. Let's see what we have. Um, so to start the beginning, and you know this well, Lucian, visas, ridiculous. It's so good now. Online, <laughs> simple, uh, you know, turnarounds quick. Oh, it's just, you know, like we've talked about, if you're just new to the kingdom, you go, oh, well, what's the, what's the fuss? <laughs> For those of us who've, who've done this over the last few decades and previous, <laughs> it's quite a fuss. It's really neat. Uh, so visas, easy to get. Um, flights. 
I mean, Riyadh to Alula, no problem. No problem. And I went from Alula to Jeddah. Uh, you know, so I got there on a on a on a, a Thursday night, which is their Friday. Um Alula Airport, I was laughing with somebody. I think it was somebody at PIF we both know, and they were talking about the Alula Airport. He says, It reminds me of Aspen. You know, it's just like a nice little new regional airport. Um, very pretty. You know, I love regional airports because they're they're human sized and uh easy in, easy out. Uh, I, I arrive at, you know, 1030 at night. I couldn't because I was late to the game. And there's uh, and this is one of the issues I think they'll, they're facing right now. You know, you have the Lux, you have the Habitat Alula, you have the Albanian tree. You know, you have some Lux options, but really you need to have done that. It's about much more advanced than I have. I ended up staying at the Diamond, which I got through Booking.com which uh, was right near, right outside the town of Alula. Um, and, you know, Alula itself is like a 200 miles north e north, northeast of uh, Medina. Um, so, you know, and it's, it's in a, it's in a valley. So anyway, it was, it was nicely located. Um, it, the place was, the place was perfect for me. I mean, it was six, six rooms, uh, I didn't see, barely saw the the proprietor. You know, I got a ride in, uh, but the place was clean, nice shower, nice light, a bunch of those, bunch of outlets, which is always a plus. Uh, decent internet, decent Wi-Fi. Uh, so it was great for me. Uh, and one thing to, to to remember if you're going to Alula and Lucian, we've talked about maybe renting a car sometime in the in the future if like we were there in Riyadh, you know. And I don't think getting around is a problem. Parking's a problem, but you could rent a car in Alula. I, you know, I traipsed around a little bit with a, a guy I met from Belgium and he had rented a car, $80 for three days. Um, it was a, it was a good deal and you can go and get anywhere you want and park and that sort of thing. And you, you hook up on the, um, on the Alula experience or, uh, or, or visit Saudi websites and you sort of make, uh, you make, uh, you sign up for tours to all the different places. And they have different experiences and that sort of thing. So all that part is is well run, you know. At each of the stops, and I'll get into the stops and why you might want to go to Alula. Um, at each of the stops, nicely staffed uh, Saudis, a lot of them, a lot of young women. Uh, there's a Taba University Alula branch right there, so a lot of the a lot of the young people I met there, you know, had had gone to school locally, and they were kind of excited because uh, these are these are jobs and lots of jobs um so the sort of the the tourist experience the access experience was was good um what's missing i think right now is that middle market hotel you know there's there's not a boodle there there's there should you know there's there should be you know a, a, a marriott courtyard or do you know what i mean you sort of have the lux, and then you have other things, uh, and then of course you don't have a, you don't have the you don't have a, a big infrastructure of if you're talking about Western tourists of uh, places to eat. I mean, I I hit the kudu uh, you know a couple times and uh, a local restaurant which I highly recommend if you're ever there. Matam al Bukhari, al Bukhari, sorry, uh, which was awesome. Uh, but anyway, so you can see that it's nascent, it's young. 
but a lot of the infrastructure is in place. All right, so why would you go there? The place is unbelievable, Lucian. It's it's fascinating. So historically, it's on the incense route. So the, you know Greece, uh, you know Greco-Roman empires, you know frankincense and myrrh and incense and and spices and that sort of thing all came up along that coast from Yemen and and point south up into you know Europe as we know it today. Uh, and Alula was a, an oasis sort of on this route. And it's been it's been sort of settled since eighth uh, century BC, and one of the tours I did was to go see sort of the legacy of the Dadan uh, settlement, it's, uh, and the the Lihan, and I don't know if I pronounced that right, was actually a civilization, and Dadan was mentioned in the Bible, is mentioned in the Bible. Lihan was a, a civilization that you know uh, settled the area. And there's fascinating inscriptions and and that sort of thing of people traveling through because the the geologic formation is sandstone, you have a lot of uh, you know uh, crypts and and graves and and monuments that are carved into the mountainside, which is what makes it so interesting. So you go there and you see the you know that eighth century one, and then uh, you there's then beginning in the second century uh ad you have the nabataeans who did petra and they 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 settled in hedra and that's where all the amazing carvings rock carvings are uh just stunning and huge huge you know uh spaces and rooms and and burial sites you know carved into the sides of mountains and you know rock formations um so so and then you've got alula which is the old town which first settled in the sixth century bc um and it's and you can you can tour the old town which and this is this is what blew my mind so so basically so you have some really fascinating historical things there geologically it's amazing it's just stunning. You know, you just walk around or ride around and go like, oh my God, oh my God, this is insane. It's like, I don't know, you know, Cappadocia and Eastern Turkey. I mean, these weird or or the Giants Causeway in Northern Ireland, it's much bigger than that. It's a whole valley. It's in the Hijaz Mountains and Sandstones Mountains. And they just, I guess there's some similarities maybe to, this, you know, the, the American Southwest. Uh, but geologically, it's just stunning. And of course, it's interwoven with the desert so you have you know these amazing sand dunes going through these incredible rock formations that have been carved and uh it's it's just stunning and i would love to just spend time you know crashing about looking at everything um i was there for a day and a half and no way you can see you know you can, if you really want to get out and do it but it's cool they have venture tours you can you can go you, know, you can zip line you can bike you can hike um all the things we'd probably like to do if we had time um, you know, I saw Elephant Rock, I saw uh, Hydra, you know, the Don, the Old Town. And the thing about the Old Town is, is you go and you see it and you realize this like, mud hut alleyways, you know, uh, you know, that that were inhabited up to the 1970s. And then you look, you know, south and north and you see, you know, newer cities where people move to. Um, you know, it's been an oasis again for for centuries, 
uh, 2.1 million palms, state palms in the in the in in the valley, and there's citrus and that sort of thing. Uh, it's just an amazing location, and they've done a good job, I think, in making it accessible. Um, and it just needs to mature a little bit in terms of, I think, you know, uh, hotel and and you know where you places you can stay, and maybe places you can eat. I was the only, because I wasn't on the Lux tour. I think I think most Americans are coming in on the Lux tour. I didn't see a single American. I saw uh, mostly Saudis, mostly Saudis, which is cool. Uh, Europeans, of course, Aussies. Aussies are everywhere. Um, but I, you know where I was going and and the tours I was doing and the places I was staying, I was the only American around. And you know, it'd be nice to see more of that because I think a lot of people are, are discovering it, and and it's it's worth the trip. It's it's really stunning visually. It's really unique visually, and it's really interesting historically, and it's extraordinarily well preserved. You just don't see. And and one of the things I really thought was fascinating for me anyway. So if you go out, if you go out to Native American, you know, like the Pueblo in 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 Southwest, and you see what they've done. You know, the 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 places they built and the civilizations they built, and you know, on mountainsides and this sort of thing. <clears throat> If you see anything that's native to the area, it's kind of a set piece. It's not actually ongoing organic. It's really cool because all these date palms are working farms today. So you can really easily visualize what it was like. And obviously the technology is, is different and you have Toyota trucks instead of camels and, and uh, you know donkeys and that sort of thing. But, you know, the, the feel is the same. These these date palms have been there for centuries. This has been, you know, the water and the, and the location have been the key to why people have been there. Um, and you can see why that was. It's very real. It's right there. Um, so anyway, I I was blown away. I thought it I thought it was a, a great trip, fascinating. I don't know how other people travel. I love, you know, I would have loved to, have, you know, just gotten out and walked forever. Um, but it was it was it was really well worth it and when you go you'll love it Lucian. yeah i'm very excited richard as you know i'm over three on attempts to go to Ola, and it's always because <laughs> uh, my windows are always either yeah, one day tired. or shorter yeah just in, uh, truly would be impossible for me to go it would be like a same day there and back trip which i think does not especially after this uh description seem worth it at all because it would just be like, Hey, cool. And then yeah. I'm on my way back to Riyadh or whatever. That's uh, not how I want to experience, but um, Richard, that was really cool. Yeah. I mean, um, it sounds amazing. It looks amazing. And it also, from your description, seems like the type of thing that looks amazing from the outside, but when you're there, it's just when you're inside the experience and it's incredible just to experience in real life, not through an image on the internet, but it's just a different type of experience when you're there. Would you say that's uh, accurate? And I think, yes, I think it is accurate. And, and I, I want to make clear, I mean, I think there are plenty of travelers who want to go there. And, like, I couldn't go see the Mariah because I hadn't made an, an appointment. I hadn't made a, a scheduled anything or gotten a ticket to any event. And it was too late when I got there. Um, I, I think there are areas around there that are super luxe and people will come in and, you know, they'll hang out and it'll be amazing. and It'll be spa-like and it'll be, you know, it'll be that kind of luxe environment, luxe experience in a really unique environment. And that has value in of itself because it's so visually striking. Um, I love the, I, I, you know, I'm never going to be averse to that. I'm down with that. That's fun. But, you know, it also has the historical, geological attraction of, of going and seeing this really weird-ass place in terms of geology. 
and see what people have done over the centuries, you know, and, and how they've lived there and what they, how they left their mark. And uh, yeah, so it can, it can cover both ends of the spectrum, I think. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a worthwhile trip. Yeah, Richard, it's interesting because um, I spoke with Ahmed Al-Juhani, uh, who's now the CEO of Rua Al-Medina, which is their sort of giga project in Medina. They're looking to build 41,000 hotel rooms there and and just sort of really develop that city out. It's one of, it's not quite, I don't think a giga project, but it's really close. But I was asking him because he said he was chief development officer and uh, construction officer for Al-Ola previously before taking on the Rua Al-Medina project. And I was like, hey, like, um, you know, it's just interesting that you have just only a few hotels and those hotels are super luxe. They're five-star Banyan Tree and Habitas Al-Ola. Like, what was the thinking behind that? Because, you know, it's it's especially last minute, if you want to get one of those rooms, it's like four or $5,000 a night, um, which I don't know, maybe is worth it, but um, it's just a little bit of a tough sell. But I'm, you know, so I was asking him about that and he said, well, essentially what we wanted to do is put those in place first right. because we really did not want to overdevelop. Um, and if you sort of open it up to all different hotel brands, it, you could have it, you know, it could risk getting developed in a way that isn't, you know, organic and not sustainable in the normal way, but just sort of, you know, wouldn't preserve the landscape. They still didn't really know what they were dealing with in Al-Ala and the surrounding areas. They were sort of like, hey, this is in a way sort of new to us. So right. we want to have things sort of slow roll. And also, I think strategically that makes sense because you're going to have a bunch of really, uh, uh, in, you're going to have a lot of influencers that go and visit Al-Ala that, you know, are showing their experience online and it looks really, really luxe and nice. And that sort of sets the tone uh, so other people can dream of going there eventually. I think the plan is to have some of these middle range hotel rooms there eventually, but I think they're just taking it slowly and they want those who experience Al-Ola now to have the experience that you had essentially, which is, you know, to really experience the space and connect with nature. And it just is a very new way of doing things in general, I think in Saudi Arabia, it's, you know, patiently, but, you know, with a longer vision to get things right. Um, but Richard, this is just really cool. Um, you mentioned visas. I, just, I took a few notes when you were talking. You mentioned visas. Um, it really, we've talked about it on this program, but that is maybe the one thing that Saudi Arabia has done in recent years that really is going to have so many knock-on effects in tourism and travel. I mean, it just is so easy. Like it, anybody listening to this right now could start applying for a visa in Saudi Arabia and yeah. have it done by the time I finish the next segment and have it in their email <laughs> inbox. I mean, that is amazing. Uh, yesterday I went to get passports for my two children who are uh two and one so i mean that involves a passport photo and then you have to print something online from the state department and then fill it out and then take it into a center and then they're like yeah we hope we'll get it back to you in seven to ten weeks and i'm just like seven to ten weeks it's like the end of summer i mean <laughs> it's it's just sort of amazing things are things are really changing in saudi arabia with respect to that um and then richard you mentioned flights um you can also fly into um, another airport nearby, um, somebody was telling me, and it's a two hour drive from that airport. So I looked at that. It's one of the reasons why I couldn't really go because the flights to and from Al-Ola are at certain times of the day. As you said, it's a regional airport, so it's not like you can go every hour. But um, you know that they can handle that kind of air traffic is really cool. 
And then you just, Richard, I just wanted to mention, you mentioned Aspen. Aspen is the scariest airport in the entire world flying into it. It's at the top of a mountain. And if there's any weather at all, you're like, oh my gosh, I really, really uh, prefer to fly to Denver and drive in. (laughs) How about the physical thing? Is it, maybe, I think it was Aspen, maybe it was Vail. I don't know. But, you know, a nice new regional airport, maybe. Uh, but you know, uh, yeah, but it's not, it's not scary to fly into it's uh, out, you know, in, in between the mountains and stuff. I mean, on the, on the Valley floor. Yeah. Richard, but, but you, that's so cool that you, that you went and you got to, I think it sounds like too, like you've left the door open a, some for, to experience more of it. It's not like you got it and you're good, but that you've got a, you got a really good feeling. That's a good point. And yes, I, I could go and spend more time there. Um, uh, and I think you make a good point too. They really, you know, they, they need to thread the needle between a sufficient stock in terms of hotel rooms and, and decent, you know, places to stay and not overdoing it mm-hmm. and preserving the, you know, the, the pristine nature of it and, and, you know, manage it properly. So I absolutely get how they're going about it. And I, I think it's interesting too, a place like the diamond that I stayed at, um, uh, you know, is, is making some nice money and there'll be more like that. You know, it's essentially, like I said, it was a hostel or Airbnb, but uh, you know, there's, there's other places like, and I got it through booking.com. I should be, <laughs> you'd appreciate this. So on the booking.com, it said, you know, you settle up with the, with the proprietor. Okay. All right. So when it was time to settle up, I realized, and I had a buddy there who helped me out named Sammy. Hi, Sammy. How you doing? I'm sure you watch the show. <laughs> he, um, um, but uh, you have to pay in cash. So huh. I didn't have enough reals to do that. <clears throat> so I'm, you know, it's a Sunday. So, so you know, their weekend is Saturday, Sunday. So it's Sunday. I'm heading out that night to Jeddah and I'm going, oh my God, we have to get some some ATMs, but I'm maxed out. So I can't, they only, you know, especially, you know, when I drop an ATM and I lose to Saudi Arabia and I live, you know, in, on the East coast of the U S you know, there's questions about it. So <laughs> a questionable transfer has been, made I can only, I can only take out a certain <laughs> amount, which was not the total cost. Um, <laughs> so in classic Saudi, I was talking with the guy, I said, look, I, you know, I can get it to you, but you, you know, I can't get any more out. It's just, that's, you know, my bank won't allow it. And I can't go in the bank because it's closed. It's a it's a, you know, it's just, it's, it's, uh, Saturday, Friday and Saturday. I'm sorry, the weekend's Friday, and Saturday. So it's Saturday, which is our Sunday. And, uh, he goes, well, okay. Uh, how much do you have? <laughs> so that's what I paid for my room. In Alula. <laughs> and you're like taking bills behind your back, taking, siphoning a few off. Well, I'm a little, <laughs> Shorter than no, I actually thought no, I was. <laughs> I gave him what I had because I mean, it was, it wasn't, it was less than that. So anyway, it was, yeah. it yeah. was, it was all pretty, it was, it was a nice experience and it was fun to be doing it. And, uh, you know, and of course you're in Saudi, so, you know, everyone's hospitable. And I do want to, I do want to commend, you know, the, 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 the folks at the sites, they had experts, you know, that you, you, you know, would, would give you a overview of things. You can really, you can really, and you would like this. I took a picture of it. I need to send it to you. You know, there's private tours. You can, you can balloon, you can helicopter, you can, you know, you can do other stuff. And then there's private tours and they have all the old, uh, old Land Rovers. They're not old Land Rovers, but the same style. So, you know, open seat Land Rovers. Sweet. They take you around. Uh, uh, so anyway, you can access this in any number of ways. I think it's useful to know that here I am just a slub going in with no, no big, you know, no, no 
no big accommodations or plans. And I had a great experience. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, we're going to include some images of Owl. I'm sure everybody that listens to this has seen it or has heard of it. But um, I mean, even the images, Richard, just are like stunning. And you you get anecdotal experiences like this, which is why I think this is such a good segment, because you really you get to hear about it and, and not just see it. And it sounds like you have to see it, not just hear about it or see things online. So I, I think this is like I mean, it's really cool. We'll have images of showing out a lot and a couple of maps as well, just to kind of give people an orientation on where it I'll, is. And I'll, and, I'll send um, you some video. Yeah. It's one of the cool, hot influencers. Like some of my like boys are like, Hey, what, what's up with this place? I'll, like it's starting to get that kind of, you're seeing enough influencers go there that you see it on Instagram or TikTok, and <laughs> you kind of start hearing about it. Everybody's heard of Riyadh, but then you have these, it's so it's sort of going to plan in that respect. So you're um, going to love this. So I, I didn't, you know, I, I had all these pictures and by the way, I have an iPhone eight. It just, you know, the place just overwhelmed the iPhone. Eight. I didn't have enough. You didn't have enough data quality or anything. I mean, it's just too many things to see and view and video and, and, and take pictures of. Um, but I wanted a record of the trip <laughs> and I, you know, the kids use Instagram. My kids use Instagram. And so I said, well, I'll just put them up on Instagram. So I have a record of the trip. Oh my goodness. Such dad Instagram, you know, you know, they're supposed to be cool. Like your, your Insta, your Insta photos are really cool. Thank you know, you. they're, they're <laughs> like really nice. They're just really well done. Number one, you look really good in them. And, and two, the atmosphere is good. And the captions really, really good. And mine was so dad-like. Oh my goodness. It was Richard, like, Richard, you, you really know how to compliment a millennial. Thank you very much. I know, it <laughs> this was. Is the They're really good. Ever. I'm always impressed with your stuff. <laughs> and uh, no, but mine are like, you know, mine are like, you know, here's a, here's a video of Alula. I don't know. You're going to get a lot of, I think you're going <laughs> to no. get some likes. I, I actually, I didn't see that pop up. So I'm going to no, go no, look I, at them. I literally, I put it on there. So, so, uh, you know, uh, T and Sarah could see it. Uh, you know, cause, and, and Jane's on it too, but, um, well, Sam I have doesn't... a nice thing to look at when we finish recording today. I'm oh, gonna get it's to see dorky, it, as, as dorky as all I don't know. You never know though. It's the type of thing, Instagram, you know, you could hit a hit and it goes viral. So I'm looking forward to seeing <laughs> it. Would not be. The only funny, the funny thing was at Alula Old Town and you, and there's right in the middle of Alula Old Town, there's this Jebel Lum Nasser, which is like a, a rock formation right in the middle. I mean, it's classic. I mean, you, you go there and, you know, you know, when, when travelers used to come through in the, in the, you know, in early centuries, you know, if they lost something, there would be a call out at the evening from the Jebel Lum Nasser about so and such and such was lost. If you want to come get it. And, uh, you know, town criers and all this sort of thing. It, it was, it's just really cool. So you've got this, you know, old, old town and this, this rock formation in the middle that sort of split the north and the south side of the town. And you could just see, you know, you know, you could just see how organic the whole thing was. And, uh, and right next to it is little sort of, uh, I guess, a, 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 a satellite store of Harvey Nichols, <laughs> which made no <laughs> sense. It's completely incongruous. You know, you had the Harvey Nichols here and then behind that you had the old town. Uh, it's, you know, that's sort of like modern Saudi Arabia, isn't it? You know, yep. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Okay, Richard, my one big thing. Yeah, sorry. I bl I blabbered way too long. No, no, it's okay. That's that's uh travel stories are meant to be like that, and I think that this was one of the best ones because it's just I don't know, it's really cool to hear about. I I was really excited. I didn't want to talk to you about it before we had this segment so I could just come in fresh. 
So I think that was really good, Richard. And again, for our listeners, if you are not really that familiar with I'll look it up, but um, you can also watch this segment on YouTube if you want, and then we'll have images of it. So um, we may even include, Richard, if you send them to me in time, some of the images that you took from Alala. We'll have some proprietary content, which is always good. Um, Richard, my one big thing this week, we didn't get a chance to talk about it since we were both in Saudi Arabia when it was announced. Um, the The mega Boeing deal between Riyadh Air and Boeing, which was really stunning and very, very good news for the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And in a few minutes as well, we're going to ask Jim Golson about it. Uh, He is the commercial uh, chief commercial officer in Riyadh for the United States. But just a huge deal. Sort of starting here with outlining the scope. Saudi Arabia will purchase up to 121 Boeing 787 Dreamliners equipped with GE's most advanced Gen X engines to anchor the newly formed Riyadh Air and expand the Saudi Airlines fleet. The deals were valued at a max of $37 billion following years of discussions, although, Richard, we know that it'll be under that because they'll get some sort of deal. And then breaking it down from there, we got we sort of have been rumored about what this new airline would be called. We thought it was going to be RIA, RIA, Air, uh, so we kind of got some reveals in that respect, but breaking it down, Saudia ordered 39 planes with options for 10 more, and Riyadh Air, the newly announced airline, will get 39 uh, as well of the two largest models, and then options for 33 more. Um, so that solves, Richard, the lingering question of whether the new airline uh, that was long rumored would replace Saudia, would sort of, um, you know, what, what would happen with Saudia if there was a new airline? Is there room for two? And I'll get back to that in a second. Um, so Riyadh Air re- issued a press release. It was sort of a big deal. It was Yasser al Rumayan and Her Royal Highness Princess Rima in a signing ce- ceremony with Boeing. And I think Tony Douglas, the new CEO of Riyadh Air, who comes over from Etihad, a Brit, um, who will be leading it up. They had this signing ceremony and it was just sort of like the image was just, hey, you know, the US and Saudi commercial relationships still going strong. This is a huge deal. Um, so the airline itself uh, hopes to serve 330 million passengers, attract um, 100 million visits by 2030 to Riyadh, and uh, service 100 different destinations, which is really cool. Um, and then you got sort of the reaction from Washington. Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, praised the deals. Um, you saw Tony Blinken as well say that it was it was really good that it was happening. Of course, Princess Rima bin Bandar, Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the United States, described the deal as a demonstration of the enduring strategic partnership between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. And Richard, it's just not Saudi Arabia these days if we're not adding a separate but still significant announcement on top of this in the conversation in the same span of time, <laughs> one that would stand on its own as a big news item. But the kingdom also announced another new airline in the same time frame, Neom. <laughs> <laughs> the amb- ambitious development in Saudi Arabia, uh, which includes Sindala, Trojina, Oxagon, and the line, has announced that it will have its own airline as of 2024. Um, the operation will begin initially with existing aircraft, but then plans to tradition- transition excuse me, to ultra-modern aircraft beginning in 2026. And then this is a, C- a quote from CEO Klaus Gorsch of the new airline. Quote, our resort will be going live in early 2024, so we need to service that demand quickly, talking about the need for existing plane technology. 
uh, initially retrofitting existing aircraft with existing technology. But come 2026 and onwards, there will be new innovative aircraft, of course, uh, whether it be electric, hydrogen powered or supersonic and next generation interiors coming online from us. So that pretty much aligns perfectly with all things we know about NEOM right now, and we'll leave it at that for now. Taking stock of this deal, speaking more about the Boeing um, Riyadh Air deal, Richard, number one, I think you can't ignore the timing of the announcement here right after the Iran-Saudi deal was brokered by China, raised some eyebrows and emphasized some frowns in Washington. I'm thinking of a frowny face, and then you highlight it in iMessage, and then you add the emphasis. I think that was sort of the reaction in Washington, but you know, was also a little bit optimistic about what's going on. So, you know, maybe five days, six days after that was announced, you have this massive deal, which was huge. Um, and I, again, I don't want to oversimplify it or say this is anything more than a coincidence, but imagining the one-two punch of that China brokered deal with then this announcement of a massive order to Airbus in France, the media pundits freaking out over here in the USA would I mean, be a little overwhelming. So that's it's really good news for Boeing and GE and the US-Saudi relationship for sure. Second, on that front, there are probably many holes in the ceilings at Boeing HQ from high velocity corks flying into <laughs> flying into the ceiling from champagne bottles on this one. Um, not just because it's a huge deal, but it's incredible validation for the Dreamliner. Um, as Wall Street Journal notes, these wide body jets are popular among world airlines because they're more fuel efficient and they have the ability to profitably carry passengers on long haul international routes. Each carries a list price of about $300 million, but there are discounts when you buy in bulk, like many things in life, and that applies to planes as well. And we don't know the level to which there are discounts on these planes, but I bet they are fairly steep given the need to get the deal done. And Richard, as you know, it's been a rocky road for Boeing since the start of the pandemic, and even a little bit before that, U.S. regulators have forced Boeing to pause deliveries of the 787 to address quality concerns uh, from including between late January and late February of this year. Deliveries were previously on hold for more than a year, ending in August, and for a five-month stretch from late 2020 to early 2021. So, yeah, um, Boeing has had a rocky road here. So it's they're not just celebrating the size of this deal, which was large, but also validation for the Dreamliner, which is now hitting its stride. Um, third, Richard, I think as if we needed more evidence, we did not. The new airport in Riyadh, big investments, new giga projects, infrastructure projects, Saudi Arabia, and... Al-Ola, as we just discussed, Saudi Arabia is definitely 100% serious and dedicated to tourism as a major driver of the economy by 2030 and beyond. And yeah, I think now that we know more about the new airline and the fate of Saudi, the plan makes more sense. You know, we were talking about this earlier on another episode, why two airlines that led to some speculation about whether one would be focused on more domestic versus international, but you already have some domestic operators in Saudi. So think we sort of learned that it's going to be more that Riyadh Air will be more of the Riyadh hub and then Saudi will go back to being the Jeddah hub. Um, actually, and Finance Minister Mohammed Al-Jadan said Jeddah alone needs one airline to concentrate on it with the Hajj and Umrah. So you needed an airline that is focused on Riyadh. So that gives some clarity to that. But yeah, I mean, Richard, we just didn't get a chance to touch on this. I think it's one of the bigger U.S.-Saudi deals in history. And really very important for the U.S.-Saudi relationship going forward. That's a good one. And I, I'm glad we, I'm glad you circled back to pick it up because, yeah, a lot happened when we were both over there <clears throat> and big news. And um, and, you know, it, it, for, first from the U.S. perspective, it is nice to see Bo Boeing's had a great 2023. I mean, India in February, you know, ordered 220 
Boeing aircraft, you know, value at 34 billion. This Saudi deal, proposed deal, prospective deal is I think the fifth largest in history. Um, and it does, you're right. It does, you know, that 787 Dreamliner bet, you know, a wide body, more fuel efficient to deal with, you know, what was projected. And, you know, when they started building it, there was the Airbus question and, the, you know, the, the A380 and the, and, uh, and, you know, the Boeing Dreamliner, you know, which one and it, it and the Dreamliner is fuel efficiency, you know, seems to be uh, a popular choice. Um, so on the Boeing side, that is exciting to see the, uh, you know, on the, on the Saudi side, I think it is interesting, you know, maybe they've decided that, uh, you know, Saudia will, will deal with Jeddah. Curiously enough, you mentioned that Neom announcement, Saudia just announced 25 new international routes, you know, to begin in 2023. So it's not like they're, they're, uh, you know, fading away in any regard. Um, and of course, with the, the you know Riyadh Air, there's the question of you know is the is the is the sector already too crowded, and that's the, that's a, the big question for everybody. And um, I look at this uh, the the there's an aviation you probably saw it we cut we 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 included it in in Sustig review the um, in the Kappa report Kappa is a center for aviationism market intelligence group. And they were saying that the Middle East and Asia Pacific regions are expected to account for 58% of the global air passenger demand in 2040. Um, uh, and the volume of investment includes, uh, you know, basically airports in the Middle East need to invest 151 billion capacity expansion for global air passenger demand, which is expected to increase twofold by 2040. Uh, it just in the Middle East alone, and Saudi Arabia, Middle East airports alone um, are expected to handle 1.1 billion passengers by 2040, which is up from 2019's 405 million. So that's you know well over double. I guess the point being, we've talked about it on the show. Saudi Arabia's making a big bet on tourism, making a big bet on aviation because they are significant parts of the global GDP. And because they anticipate with reports like this that there's going to be greater traffic. And because they're willing, as we've talked about again repeatedly on the show, they're willing for this to be a loss leader in order to establish Saudi Arabia in, from their perspective, in its proper position as the center of this this Asia, African, European nexus. And uh, you know these numbers are huge, and they seem they seem redundant sometimes. Uh, but you know Saudi Arabia is on a different sort of path, and it's it it sees itself. I think I think you know we all sort of suffer lack of imagination of what what Saudi Arabia's ambitions are, and uh, having two airlines and especially this Riyadh Air, which is which really by the nature of its purchases is going to be a transit. You know these are long haul planes. People will use Saudi Arabia, will use Riyadh, uh, not only to get there but to get to get to other places, and and so it's it's a it's a fascinating play. I'm delighted. I love. You know these sort of large capital purchases, um, like defense and other things, are really important for relationships because they're long-term relationships. And I, you know, you want to see this thing, this deal closed and and started. But you know, they're long-term commitments and long-term relationships, and those are really important to the broader political relationship, if you want it. So anyway, that was a good one, Lucian. That was a good one to pull. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean the um, long. You mentioned long-term relationships. A great, great point. So they, 
the deal is going to support 140,000 jobs across the U.S. So there's sort of a soft power relationship there. I mean, a lot of these jobs will be created and sustained because of this deal and other deals like it. So, and there's, you know, there's, there's just more to that. And Richard, I, I, when I was looking up into this, just thought it was really interesting. Saudia was founded in 1945. It received its first jet as a gift from Franklin Roosevelt, which is cool. Um, I didn't know that. That's a cool little, little information snack as they call it. Um, yeah, Richard, air travel is so impressive and sophisticated now. It just blows my mind every time I'm on a flight that these things are so safe and they're so generally reliable. I, I just, it's so impressive. The other thing that I thought was interesting, Richard, is Boeing last year moved its headquarters from Chicago to Arlington, Virginia, which is the birthplace of one Lucian Michael Ziegler. Um, it's really, really <laughs> cool. So the main um, motivation. Yeah, that's why they did it, obviously. Um, and Richard, you mentioned is, you know, the sector too crowded. Um, it, uh, that's a great question. I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, if you're asking Frankfurt, London, Istanbul, Doha, Dubai, the answer is yes. If we don't, right. they don't want any more players. If you're Riyadh, the answer is emphatically no. But right. I think the plan here is to sort of create a larger market or expand the market as well to accommodate some of these new players um, to sort of maybe, uh, I mean, as you know, the a new airport coming in by 2050, which should be globally um, one of the best and very impressive. So they're hoping to make the market share for the Middle East larger. So maybe we'll be less crowded if they enter. Um, we're going to see how it all plays out. But and yeah, maybe maybe a rising time to saw boats. But as you know, if you look at the projections in the Middle East and Asia Pacific, it's very positive. And, and, you know, the sort of bright spot, one of the brightest spots in terms of projected growth and Saudi Arabia is very clearly saying, OK, we want, you know, we're coming for our share of this. Mm hmm. And mm -hmm. um, and like I said, it, you know, it may it may not be economical initially, but in 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 terms of their larger project, it makes sense. Yep. Richard, what do you think? Let's yes. get to our conversation with Mr. James Golson, senior commercial officer for Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. He's just just a great combo. We have the pleasure now of speaking with Mr. James Golson, senior commercial officer for Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and Counselor for Commercial Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh, a role he's held since 2021. Mr. Golson's career has taken him around the globe and back again. Previously, he was Senior Commercial Officer in Moscow from 2019 to 2021. And before that, he was at the U.S. Department of Commerce as Executive Director of Asia. He's held top-level commercial roles at embassies across Asia, including Chennai, Thailand, Shanghai, Myanmar. James, thanks so much for joining us on the 966. Thank you. It's a great privilege to be here with you. James, we are delighted to have you. And I have to, I have to, we have to do a couple of things, a little backstory here. We have to do a shout out to our friend, Steve Lutz. Mm -hmm. uh, Steve is vice president Middle East for the U S chamber of commerce, a good friend of ours. And uh, he was a, a guest on the nine, six, six, few episodes ago. Well, a really good episode. I recommend it to you. And afterwards we were just talking and I said, oh, I'm headed out there. <clears throat> and he said, Oh, you've got to see my friend, Jim Golson. And he's, and he said, you know, whatever you do, you got to go see him because he's doing great work out there. He's extremely active. He's, he's bringing the you know, community together, you know, promoting us business interests. So he was very complimentary James. And, and, uh, and as it turns out, my timing was good. I got to come by your pad out of the DQ, <laughs> which is a lovely, a lovely gathering spot. Uh, with its own podium, I might say, Lucian. I might add, it's got it's nice in the backyard. It's got a nice podium and and a big this sort of sort of stage. Did that come with the house, James? 
Um, it did. It did. It's not custom built. <laughs> <laughs> Richard probably walked right to it. <laughs> um, but let's talk about let's talk about your experience in in Saudi Arabia. And let's start with uh, Lucian uh, alluded to it. He, he, you know, he talked about he, he he noted all the places you've served. Can you talk a little bit about your journey with commerce? Like, as Lucian said, Shanghai, Thailand, and, you know, that that great, you know, that great wilderness, Washington, D.C., where you were for a time. But uh, please tell us about this. Yeah, absolutely, Richard. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I think when we do well as commercial officers, as foreign service officers, we're in markets that are complex and are growing. And so I've had the good fortune of uh, starting my career in Shanghai, China, this was the early 2000s. Things were really booming. It's great, great uh, training ground. I mean, it was nonstop action. And frankly, in hindsight, it prepared me for what I'm doing now in, in Riyadh. <laughs> and then I, I certainly got the bug there in China, went over to Thailand, and Thailand has an incredible American business community, uh, really learned the ropes, uh, working with high-level policy engagements with U.S. companies. Uh, then from there over to India, which again, just incredible complexity, incredible opportunity. Um, I covered Chennai, Bangalore, and Hyderabad, uh, just a, a great posting, very dynamic market. Um, following that, I had the opportunity to open our office in, in Myanmar and Burma, and that was uh, really a career milestone. Everything was new. Uh, they were just uh, adopting uh, Western technology for the first time, so incredibly exciting. And then, yes, uh, off to Washington, D.C. for a few years and and uh, took my lessons there. And it's a whole different game there, of course. And we can talk about that if you like. And then and then over to Moscow for, for two years, uh, which was a really challenging post, but uh, an important post. We were trying to navigate uh, some difficult currents uh, while at the same time supporting uh, what existing trade was was happening there. And fortunately, uh, the opportunity arose to come to Saudi Arabia before things really went south in Moscow. And I, I jumped on it because I knew a lot of colleagues in the private sector and in the diplomatic service that worked here. And they said, you know, what's going on at Riyadh, you cannot miss. So my journey has been uh, a very fortunate one. Uh, you know, I've really sought out those opportunities where there's complexity and where there's growth, because I think that's where... Uh, people in my position can can try to add some value. So I, I'm really grateful for the the journey I've had to date. That's that's fascinating, and and it is funny how that works. Talented people sort of find interesting places, and and so when you, you were in China, that was right when they uh, joined the WTO. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I, I had worked at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce previous to my government service, and I worked on on China's WTO uh, ascension and. Yeah, China was uh, and remains, you know, one of the most complex markets. But, you know, as I said, an incredible training ground, uh, just every challenge that you can imagine, uh, which gives, you know, again, people in, in public service the chance to problem solve on behalf of U.S. companies. Well, and let's bring it up to date because your timing in Saudi is fascinating, too. And you you arrived there in July 2021 um, in the midst of a lot of change. I mean, it, it, it's, as you, you mentioned, you know, it's an exciting time. And as your, your colleagues and friends said, you know, you really want to be here in Saudi. Um, so you arrived, it's sort of still COVID, you know, sort of a, a little bit of, you know, everything was still dampened by, you know, COVID protocols and that sort of thing. But uh, what's your experience been since you've been in Saudi Arabia? And my understanding is 
is you're you're extremely active. You're 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 bringing together, convening people out there all the time. So you you it sounds like you're going nonstop. But but tell us about what it's been like there now, close to you know, in 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 you know, a few months it'll be two years. Yeah, no, it's been it's been extraordinary, honestly. Uh, yeah. So when I arrived, we were just coming out of COVID, and so what that means is there was not a lot of public engagement. So there was a really uh, pent up demand for that kind of engagement. And, and so I, I seized uh, that opportunity, as you say, to convene multiple events. But, um, you know, I did not come to Riyadh with a background in the Middle East. And a lot of my colleagues have, and I really do value their experience. But in a way, I think it helped me because I, I kind of arrived in Saudi Arabia at this time of profound change and really didn't, uh, you know, have that reference point of what it was five to 10 years ago. Certainly learned a lot from my friends and colleagues that have been here for 20 years. And again, I, you know, incredible respect for the work that they have done. But, you know, arriving in Riyadh, you just sense the energy straight away. And uh, whether it's the government, the private sector, the giga projects, People were working hard, uh, you know, seven days a week. Uh, clearly some real time pressure to accomplish Vision 2030. And so the challenge for me was to get up to speed quickly. And I did do that by convening uh, folks who had been here a long time. Uh, and, you know, you know this, Richard, Saudis are incredibly hospitable and, and very uh, easy to get to know in my experience uh, and very helpful. So, you know, trying to match my experience with the moment and, and plugging into that energy and excitement was a challenge, but it was a great challenge. And uh, certainly it's been, a, it's been a fun ride ever since. Yes, yeah, so Lucian, Lucian and I often comment on the hospitality and the welcoming nature um, and the affinity, you know, uh, often Americans have with Saudis. Um, what's the, in, a, in, a big, in a big view, what's the state of play in the U.S.-Saudi commercial relationship? Uh, we can talk trade numbers and, you know, and in goods and services, that sort of thing. I'd love to get the, you know, the big macro picture, but also your insights as to, you know, the actual activity on the ground, the kind of energy, what direction things are headed. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, clearly everyone knows about the strong foundation we have in energy and uh, defense, and that's been ongoing for a very long time. Uh, it's been very productive for both countries and continues. Um, what, what I noticed immediately were these emerging sectors that uh, the Saudis are developing at a rapid pace. And this is anything from healthcare to the entertainment sector to uh, the digital economy. And uh, they really are hiring the best uh, people from around the world, including incredibly talented Saudis who have worked all around the world. And so, you know, yes, the numbers are, are strong. Uh, U.S. exports are up. We recently had the announcement of the Boeing deal for Riyadh Air, which was not only uh, a huge uh, accomplishment for Boeing and, and for the kingdom, but really demonstrated that U.S. companies can deliver on the ambitious plans for 2030. Let's keep in mind that the airline is being launched to support, uh, you know, the incredible tourism goals of the kingdom. To bring 100 million tourists uh, annually to Saudi Arabia, and they want to have an airport that can, uh, airport and airline that can facilitate that. So, you know, that's just one data point of many that we see, a big one, of course. But uh, US companies uh, are, are seeing opportunities here in these new sectors, uh, and, and Saudi Arabia is, is really reaching out to partner with them to accomplish their goals. 
Well, and that's a, that's an important point. I'd like to dig into that a little bit because you're right that you know there's there's bulwark relationships that have always been in place in the business community in the defense and energy sector, and and, and they they it, it, we've talked about we've had Bill Foster who is president of MSHAM KSA on the show, we've had Steve Lutz on the show, and we uh, you know are big fans and recognize how critical really this business these business ties are. Uh, one of the things that commerce and trade tries to do is tries to help small and medium-sized enterprises get into markets. And uh, traditionally, you know, especially overseas, but in, in the region too, that's tough for, for a lot of American small and medium SMEs, you know, because they don't have, they don't have the, they don't really have the staying power to come and just set up shop. They may not be able to do market studies, any number of things. Um, are you seeing, and you mentioned three sectors, healthcare, entertainment, digital economy, are you seeing greater U.S. activity interest on the part of, of the non-traditional players in terms of U.S. corporations? Yeah, absolutely. And I should mention last June, uh, the two governments launched the U.S.-Saudi uh, commercial work plan. This was launched by uh, Secretary Raimondo, our Secretary of Commerce, and His uh, Excellency the Minister of Commerce, Dr. Majid Al-Kasabi. And it's focused on four key areas. Um, one is the green economy, and that's all things renewable. Uh, the second is two-way investment. The third is innovation. And the fourth is SMEs, uh, SMEs and women in business. And under this fourth pillar of the work plan, we are both, both governments are working to get um, small and medium-sized companies plugged into the opportunities. And we have had uh, numerous uh, success stories uh, bringing small companies over here. The Saudi government is very helpful in, in uh, laying the groundwork for small companies to set up operations. They understand the challenges that you mentioned. We in, our, in my office help vet partners for American small companies. We help uh, with really uh, kind of bespoke matchmaking to get them to the right people that can plug them into the opportunities. And just uh, this afternoon, we had a company in my office that does uh, has an AI application that helps with um, essentially tracking assets, whether it's a, a fleet or, or people entering a concert. And they found great success. And that's just one of you know probably 60 in the past six months that we've helped um, enter the market. So yes, it is hard for small companies. But with support from my office, from partners like the American Chamber and, and the Saudi government, um, we, we have seen some uh, really good success. So this is interesting. It's the U.S.-Saudi work plan. U.S.-Saudi commercial work plan. Commercial yes. work plan. <laughs> you know, we, we're we big fans of uh, His Excellency Dr. Majid Al-Kasabi, the Minister of Commerce, Saudi Minister of Commerce. And I'm, Lucia, I'm not at all surprised that it's called a work plan. <laughs> the name sounds a little familiar. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, because he's all business. He's not, yeah. you know, this isn't a vision. This isn't a strategy. This is a work plan. Yeah. And I have to be honest with you, James, I'd like to hear more about that because I don't think enough people know. I didn't realize, I, I, again, uh, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to the Saudi Ministry of Commerce and, and the good work they do and the people they have. Um. But, you know, this is interesting. So in the, the three areas of the green economy, two-way investment, innovation, and SMEs with a focus on women, and, and correct? Yeah. And does this have, a, this was put in place when? Uh, June of last year. So June right, 20, so it's, it's still less than a year old. 
Um, and you're happy with the, you know, you guys, everyone's happy with the progress to date. Yeah, no, I'm happy to touch on kind of highlights for all four, if you like. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start with innovation. Um, so we have been working closely uh, with our private sector partners, including the U.S. Chamber and the American Chamber of Commerce to work on the regulatory framework that helps foster um, investment in the innovative economy. And I've got to say, it's been uh, very productive. Um, we really are grateful for the Saudi government listening to industry and making adjustments in the policy framework that helps facilitate this investment. And we had the lead conference here, uh, you know, uh, almost two months ago, and there were nearly $5 billion worth of contracts to U.S. companies um, awarded at that conference. And yes, all the big names, but also a lot of small companies as well. And that would have only been possible through the policy framework and the changes uh, and the consultation, really, not just between the governments, but with the private sector. So we've seen really good progress there. It's really just the beginning. We're looking forward to the AI summit in September uh, in Riyadh. And again, you know, plugging into these, these small companies. So a lot of progress on innovation. On, on the green economy, uh, just last week in Dahran at the U.S. consulate, we, we held a uh, event on carbon capture uh, with the Ministry of Energy, with Aramco, and with the U.S. business community. Uh, and it was really a productive session, uh, what we call trade talks. It's really an exchange of ideas and coming up with plans to really utilize the latest technology to help achieve Saudi's green economy goals. Now, of course, this provides opportunities for U.S. technology providers, but also addresses the key policy goals for both countries. In the U.S., of course, we have the Inflation Reduction Act, which is creating all kinds of opportunities and, and new uh, regulations uh, that companies are just beginning to figure out. So that it, that is also a very exciting space. About three weeks ago in Riyadh, we did a similar event, uh, but focused on third country investments and working with Saudi companies and U.S. companies in places like Egypt and Morocco and Jordan to, to build out that infrastructure for the green economy. So really kind of pragmatic, you know, uh, business focused uh, discussions about how we can start these projects on. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, I didn't want to interrupt you. That was, that's excellent and, and really informative. Um, <clears throat> Uh, it speaks to something we talk about the year on the 966, and we talk a lot about the changing relationship, the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And, we'll, you know, at the policy level, we're not going to worry about that here. But uh, Saudi Arabia looking, obviously, to to um, to diversify its its, you know, its political relationships to maintain its key commercial relationships that trend east, certainly in terms of energy. Um, <clears throat> and they're trying to refashion the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And I think what we talk about, Nushin, I, I think you'll agree, is on the 966 is, we're all for this because if it's a competition, we're, you know, the U.S., American company, American technology, American minds uh, is perfectly well suited to compete and succeed, uh, which is why I love hearing this, because this is a real conversation about let's lay out the framework, the regulatory environment, and, and let's see what you have. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, competition comes up all the time, whether it's from the east, north, west, or south. And and like you said, uh, we welcome that. I mean, all all we seek is an open playing field for U.S. companies to compete, right? And we are we are confident, and we've seen this time and time again. When when that open playing field is available, 
the technology and ideas and, and uh, innovation and uh, life cycle costs of American companies often win the day. Not always, of course, uh, but we believe competition is a good thing uh, as long as it, it, it's uh, open. And we, we have seen it be very, very open here in Saudi Arabia, which is great. So before before we change our perspective and our point of view, I just want you to, will you run down for me the, the services offered by the International Trade Administration and the commercial services to sure. a prospective business? Because it's, it's significant and it's broad and it's deep. Absolutely. So uh, we can start with uh, commercial advocacy. And this is anytime a U.S. company is bidding on a public tender. Uh, we will work with that company to develop a strategy to advocate on their behalf with the Saudi government um, decision maker. So this is uh, something we use for, for high profile projects. Uh, there's no cost involved. Uh, and Saudi Arabia is one of the largest advocacy case countries for the United States and the world, um, most of which are successful. So that's for the big companies. Then we, we can talk about what we do uh, call it a single company promotion. And you mentioned that we do convene a lot of uh, events. You've been to my house before. And I since I've been here, I've had 52 events at in, in my house. Wow. Uh, promoting U.S. companies or U.S. Uh, associations. And it's been great. Um, and so we, we can do that at a hotel. We can do it at the uh, at the embassy or at my residence, depending on the type of event we're looking for. But typically, the goal is to to really promote a company and what what they're doing that's new, their 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 solution, and turn out the right kind of crowd of Saudis. And we've had great success with that. Now, shifting over to the uh, smaller companies, uh, we have a series of services that we provide. One is called the Gold Key Service. Um, a company will uh, essentially we work with them to define their objective to enter the market. And then we do a very structured um, matchmaking uh, to achieve that objective. And that can be with Saudi business families, Saudi companies, uh, the government, distributors, agents. Uh, it, it, it varies every single time. So that's that, a very popular service. The goal key service is fee-based, right? It is fee-based, yeah. Right. So we are mandated by Congress anytime we do uh, focused uh, energy on one company and their commercial success, we have to recover the cost, but typically this costs about $900 uh, for, you know, a series of uh, a couple of days of pre-vetted meetings. So uh, definitely affordable. But again, exactly. That's an extraordinary value for a small SME. Yeah. Yeah. And it really does help get them uh, get their feet on the ground. And we also do a, a due diligence check. So we call that an international company profile. Uh, so once they find that partner, uh, they, they want to make you know sure that their uh, bank records and, and reputational uh, risks are, are taken care of. And so we work with contractors and in-house with our, our local locally employed staff, which are extraordinary. They Many of whom have worked in the market for 20 years to produce that report that gives uh, the U.S. companies some some confidence in their, their partner. Are U.S. companies uh, tapping into these resources? They, they are. I'm, I'm very happy to say we have uh, the highest volume of these services, certainly in the Middle East and Africa. So we are, uh, yes, we're very much engaged with SMEs in this space. And this is across awesome. the whole commercial U.S. commercial service? You're Correct. talking... So that's fascinating. Interesting, Lucian, because, you know, remember we were surprised when Steve Lutz, you know, was with the U.S. Chamber, a huge organization. <clears throat> and and obviously their international, uh, you know, branch is also large. And he was 
saying that the largest percentage of employees in focus is on the Middle East. This is the yeah. U.S. chamber. Yeah. And, we, and, and, you know, so the U.S. commercial service, we're seeing the same thing. Uh, just fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, James. Um, so change of perspective for you. And you said you weren't a Middle East expert or a Saudi expert. Can you talk a little, so, but you, here you are, you land in Saudi Arabia about, you know, you know, really interestingly enough, if, if Vision 2030 was uh, announced in June 2016, a lot of the implementation, a lot of momentum, you started to see 2020, 21, about when you arrived and, you know, really picking up now. Looking at it from Saudi Arabia, what, what's, how would you assess this from Saudi Arabia's perspective? What it means to the country, what it means to the community, what it means to the youth, to the commercial and business and, uh, you know, communities, uh, sort of across the board, what's your take? Well, you know, as I think you both know, Saudi is a very young population, right? 70% uh, under the age of 35. And uh, across the board, everyone we talk to, um, the vision is uh, inspirational. I mean, it's very ambitious. They've already accomplished uh, certain key elements, uh, for example, women in the workforce. So, uh, you know, key elements of the vision have been accomplished, but, but incredible ambition as well. Uh, we see the Giga Projects, we see Neom, and I think it's, uh, it gives people inspiration that there is hope and there's uh, not just hope, but, uh, you know, this incredible... Um, goal in mind for the country and and people are are behind that and so um you know the young people of saudi arabia by that i mean you know people 35 and, and younger that we deal with on a regular basis are incredibly excited about what's happening here so it's uh it, it's a great time to be here with this huge amount of uh, optimism it it really is the uh the filter that everyone every Saudi we know looks at themselves now is the vision 2030 filter, you know, sort of where, where we're headed, what we're trying to do, what we're capable of doing. It's, and it's a, in a significant uh, difference from five years ago uh, when you didn't have that sort of organizing thought and that organizing uh, mission in essence. So uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to speculate, which, you know, responsible people don't do. Um, what, what would you like to see the you know see vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. Saudi business environment between here and 2030? 2030 being the you know sort of a benchmark where Saudi Arabia wants to achieve a, some percentage of its goals. How do you want to see the U.S. Saudi business relationship evolve? Yeah. So again, I think those emerging new sectors is what I really want to see companies plug into. And, and what I've seen in my almost two years here is once people come for the first time and see it for themselves. They are true believers, um, but there there is a bit of a knowledge gap, uh, a bit of a knowledge lag uh, for companies that have not been here recently. And so what I'd really like to see is more companies come. Um, and when they do come, they talk to multiple people. They talk to us. They talk to the Saudi government. They talk to expats. They talk to Saudis as they should and make their own judgment. But, you know, seeing is, is believing. And uh, I think what people really leave with once they come after their first time is, is the energy and, and really the, the fact that, you know, the younger Saudis have, have really bought into this and are trying to execute as quickly as possible. So again, I think U.S. companies can provide those solutions that can accomplish the goals because a lot of what drives things here is time pressure under Vision 2030. It's incredibly ambitious. We're seven years uh, to, to the goal 
And so if companies come in with a solution that can help achieve that, you know, objective X within that time frame, they will find the doors wide open. A uh, new ambassador coming in, uh, Michael Ratney, is, um, is he there yet? I mean, is he, is he on the ground? Uh, do you know the status of that? And um, I mean, is there excitement for his appointment and his, uh, his position there? Uh, yeah, no, he is uh, not on the ground yet. He has been confirmed. And so we do expect him in the, in the coming weeks. There is absolutely excitement, um, both from the business community and from everyone else in Riyadh. So we are very eager to welcome uh, Ambassador Ratney in, in a few weeks' time. We're delighted. I mean, as observers of Saudi Arabia and as champions of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, especially U.S. interests in the region, you know, it pains us. Martina Strong has done a very good job. She's an extremely capable diplomat. But, it, you know, it pains us to see that, you know, of, of this last seven years, you know, there, you know, five of those, we haven't had an ambassador on seat in Saudi Arabia. And that's just a, you know, that's a political, you know, problem here at home. This is, has nothing to do with it, but we're we're delighted that you know uh, Ambassador Ratney was has been confirmed and will come out and be able to be there on the ground because it does make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And and you mentioned uh, Martina Strong, our Charge Affair, almost five years uh, in Riyadh, an incredible advocate for U.S. companies. And so uh, I know the business community here, and and we all wish her uh, nothing but the best. But yes, you know, having an ambassador here will be uh, incredible. You know, if if I'm Ambassador Ratney, I say I'd implore uh, Martina Strong just to stay on a little bit longer, just so I can I can hang out with you and learn all that you've learned in five years. You know, because so often, you know, I've been here five years, I gotta go, or they're they're moved out. But you know, it'd be nice if they had some overlap, because as you say, there's a lot of a uh, lot of experience and and wisdom and and being on the ground there. Um, James, can I ask one more question? And, and it kind of plugs into uh, Richard's first question. When you found out that you were going to be moving to Riyadh, what was the first reaction? Like, what was the first thought you had in your head about this? I mean, because you hadn't spent a lot of time there. Um, I mean, you have a lot of experience traveling around the world. But in that, I mean, you, you get the news that you're going to be the commercial officer in Riyadh. What, how did you feel? Like, what was your reaction? So, I mean, honestly, I was excited because before I opened the door to that opportunity, I did I did my research. You know, after being around as long as I've been around in the foreign commercial service, I talked to loads of people, uh, both in the private sector and in my predecessors. And so I, I had a sense of what to expect. So I, I honestly, I was excited. But um, equally honest, honestly, when I got here, I didn't realize how much was going on. Yeah. So it was a nice surprise. I will just mention one more thing on the uh, SMEs and women pillar. Uh, we, we are bringing a delegation of Saudi women startups to the United States in May. Mm. And they're going to Washington, uh, Detroit, and the Bay Area, San Francisco. Um, and so, you know, part of what I said about companies coming here and seeing it for themselves, we also feel the responsibility to take Saudis to the U.S. And these Saudis that we are bringing are incredible um, you know, young women, startup leaders, most of whom have at least three to four different jobs, all of whom have capital. Uh, so they're not seeking, you know, venture capital. They're seeking ideas and, and uh, partners. And so, you know, we're incredibly excited about this because some of the smartest people in the world that I've dealt with operate in this space. And we really look forward to plugging them into kind of the broader U.S. business community just to raise awareness. Yeah. And that's, there's no better sort of 
little mini Richard and I use the term ambassadors when these things happen because it's just like nothing does a better job at showing Americans and the other way around like the real Saudi Arabia when they meet people like this it's really it's amazing Mr. James Golson senior commercial officer for Saudi Arabia and Bahrain joining us from Riyadh thank you so much for your time James this was awesome no thank thank you both really a pleasure to be with you and uh thank you for having me on Richard, that was our, as we think, awesome conversation with Mr. James Golson, just such an impressive guy <laughs> and really is doing some really good work um, with the U.S. Embassy in Saudi Arabia. So we appreciate his time. And again, you can listen to any of these segments on YouTube if you want to just hear that conversation or any of the other conversations we've had. Just go there and listen to them as uh, as individual segments. But yeah, James was just uh, just well, as good was, as it gets. He was on his game. He knows his stuff. And it was, a, that was a great conversation. I, I learned a lot and I thought, you know, I thought I knew a little bit about stuff, but no, this was good. We did actually learn about a cool new program during yeah, the conversation. No. And we were like, wait, really? What, <laughs> tell us and more it's an important that. one. Yeah. And hopefully we can, we can hope, uh, you know, you know, bring some attention to it and maybe get some of the participants in a future episode. Cause it's pretty cool. This, what the, what the Saudi ministry of commerce and the, U.S. Department of Commerce, their work plan, which I love, what they're doing. It's, it's impressive. Totally. Uh, Richard, what do you think? Let's get to Yella. Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Number one. Uh, maybe you haven't heard, but it's all around, you know, big news. Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan al-Saud and his Iranian counterpart, Hussein Amir Abdullahian, have agreed to meet during the ongoing Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Quote, during the call, a number of common issues were discussed in light of the tripartite agreement that was signed in the People's Republic of China. The two ministers also agreed to hold a bilateral meeting between them during the ongoing month of Ramadan, unquote, according to the SPA. Richard, the relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran are warming up like butter on a hot skillet right now. It's going so quickly, not just the two ministers speaking this week, but China's Xi Jinping and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who, you know, it, I should just sort of inject here, is now prime minister. So he's head of state. So these types of bilateral calls are more appropriate. Um, they also spoke this week. They discussed a wide range of subjects, including the Saudi-Iran deal. Um, MBS voiced appreciation for China's initiative, which is an interesting word to support, quote, efforts to develop good neighborliness between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Make sure you give our latest episode a listen with um, our tripartite of guests, our trio <laughs> of guests, uh, John Alterman, Aziz Al-Gashayan, and Fahad Nasser. It just you get three really good perspective, expert perspectives on what ha what's happening I mean, this is a very important story. So, I mean, we're a little jealous. We're a little jelly over here in the U.S. that China was the one to broker it, but it's it's good. This is a good thing. It is a good thing. Yeah, and and you know, it's 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 the U.S. is is happy. You know, says you know the, the official line, and I think there's some truth to it. Is that the, the glad regional partners are talking with each other, and and you know, any kind of deconfliction is a good thing. I think you know, and I know you know, we get excited about it. I think all our guests would agree. This is just sort of, uh, you know, this doesn't, <clears throat> this doesn't eliminate, you know, centuries, decades worth of, of uh, distrust and, and uh, concern, awareness about each other. But it's, it's, it is a, a, 
you know, a commitment to try and improve things and certainly up the level of communication and the level of diplomatic contact. Contact, And that's encouraging. And I, I think it's, you know, from the Saudi perspective, I mean, it reaffirms from me um, two things. One, uh, you know, I, I, you know, it was interesting. And, and, and uh, Aziz Agashayan mentioned this, and I think it was a really good point. He was referring to, he was referring to Crown uh, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman talking about uh, wanting the whole region to prosper, <clears throat> you know, not just Saudi Arabia. And, and I think this is how MBS is, thinks, you know, he, he in that in the 28, uh, 2018 future investment uh, initiative. Were you with that one? 2018? 2018. No, no, no. Um, that was the one. Um, was that, wasn't that the that first was right one after, after that was right after, Yeah. Right. So that was the like, yeah. yeah. Um, so so, but he told the audience that, you know, he, he wanted the Middle East to be the new Europe. And I only offer this because I think this is, that's the, that's the scale at which he's thinking. And he sees, you know, deconflicting, which he's spent a lot of time over the last 18 months, um, you know, deconflicting the region. Uh, so it is, it, it's, a, it's more amicable and, and, and you can, you know, accomplish a little bit more and, and get some work done. You know, it was a key part of that. So I, I think this is this is something that for the Saudi project is uh, is important and useful, and they'd really like to to to, to have better relations, or at least you know workable relations. <clears throat> and obviously, they'd like to see some progress in Yemen, some sort of resolution there. But the this you know this, the more local picture is it, the more you more you see what Saudi Arabia does in its foreign policy, and the more you understand that its oper operational framework is almost you know, is clearly let's preserve this Vision 2030 project. We have to get someplace economically, socially, uh, in terms of um, terms of our future, assuring and securing our future. And you know, this project is how we're going to get there, and we have to protect it no matter what. And part of that is better relations within throughout the region. Definitely, and and Richard, the other the other option here is to just keep going with the status quo, which is not good. So. I mean, you just got to root for this. I mean, you know, you got to hope that it sticks and that they work things out and that China has some sort of enforcement levers to pull, I guess. But I mean, maybe they just don't need that. We'll see. I we'll mean, see. you know, I, I don't I don't see Iran, you know, as I, as I mentioned to Aziz when we talk with them, I mean, I think it was Aziz. Um, there's still that overlay of very, you know, uh, extreme animosity antagonism between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And, I mean, Iran and the U.S. And by the way, it hasn't gone on away with Iran and Saudi Arabia. They're just they're just trying to work it a, a differently. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, and so, you know, Saudi Arabia is very concerned about a potential Israeli strike on Iran. What does that mean? Collateral damage. I mean, it's it, you know, it's clearly they haven't been able the U.S. Uh, policy hasn't been able to bring you know, reduce Iran's meddling in, in neighbors or its uh, push on its nuclear program. So, you know, what was in play wasn't really working for Saudi Arabia's purposes. So they take this tack. Yeah. Richard, yellow number two, also related to the previous topic, Saudi Aramco deepens its push into China with $3.6 billion in a refinery deal. 
Aramco is buying 10% of Rongsheng Petrochemical Company, one of China's refining giants, for 24.6 billion won, or $3.6 billion, in a move that expands its presence in the world's biggest energy importer. Bloomberg reports it's the second deal in two days that will boost Aramco's exports to China and adds up to commitments to ship nearly 700,000 barrels of additional oil a day to the country for conversion into chemicals. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's it, again, if if you sort of like the Iran, uh, you know, agreement, if you sort of step back and look at it, what makes sense, this makes sense. You know, this is this, you know, this is a primary. Its primary market is that way: China, Korea, Japan, um, Asia in general, uh, and securing you know guaranteed uh, offtakes of your product is you know the holy grail. So this is these are two projects that do exactly that, and it's 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 uh, you know so it's a it's a win. They've been talking about this for some time, and it's kind of interesting because that wrong uh, the the one deal is a greenfield, you know, refinery project they want to do. The other is they're buying into an independent refiner, which is kind of different. They usually send you know the, the, a lot of their primary customers are state state owned. Um, so this is a little bit of a, you know, it's kind of interesting deal and it is a very interesting deal and it secures them. But again, they've been, they've been trying to build this all around the region. They have a $7 billion project with South Korea on petrochemicals, crude oil, the petrochemicals. You know, they have a, a pre-positioning storage agreement with Japan. They, they've been chasing uh, a really significant refinery, a petrochemical plant with India yeah. for some time, which has run into some, you know, political issues in terms of local communities and that sort of thing. And they're looking to sort of spread it out, but that's, that's expected to be a huge multi-billion dollar investment. So they're, they're, you know, they're really trying to engage their primary customers. Yeah. And this is like you mentioned, part of a years long push into Asia because that's the growing market for them. So this isn't like the timing of this isn't, we just did two big deals with China, you know, right on the back of everything going on. This has been in the works for a while, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's just, these, these are big deals and this, I'm glad you said the word holy grail because that's everything. Getting the the customer in place just makes it a snap. So, yeah, Yeah. well said. Uh, Number three, Saudi Arabia is launching soft money schemes worth a total of $234 available to both local and international companies over the next three years in its ongoing effort uh, to launch a local film and TV industry almost from scratch. The Saudi Cultural Development Fund officially unveiled its so-called film sector financing program during the the Ignite the Scene event dedicated to the film industry held in Riyadh recently. Yeah, Richard, we've talked about the growing TV and film industry in Saudi Arabia and the booming cinema industry in the kingdom, across the kingdom. Thought that the story was really good. Um, they, it includes an interview or a reference to an interview that Variety, where the story was published, with Najla Al Omer, who's the Cultural Development Fund's Chief Strategy and Business Develop Officer. She said the soft money is uh, in a pot and is split into two pot parts: one allocated for loans that amounts to 154 million, and the other for investments uh, amounting to 80 million. So they've got this fund set up, and they're going to start investing just to make really to ignite everything and kickstart everything in Riyadh. Um, also, Richard, I thought this was interesting in the article, eligible products, uh, excuse me, eligible projects do not have to be shot entirely in Saudi Arabia, but they need to meet local cultural criteria 
and at least 25% of the spend has to be invested into Saudi Arabia. Also, 25% of the crew must be made up of Saudi nationals, so you have that sort of knowledge transfer um, experience spillover element to this. So they are very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's more incentives, key incentives. I mean, this is, I guess they, they also have in place a, a 40%, uh, they'll provide 40% in incentives in cash back, essentially, for productions that use a Saudi crew and, and talent and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're making, you know, they're doing everything to make it easy to come. And, and, and uh, by the way, the two, the two, there's a couple of blockbusters that I guess I, I, the, the Kandahar one with Gerard Butler, I don't think is out. Is it? I have that no was, idea. That is it, is it out? I don't think, uh, yeah. And then the Desert Warrior with Anthony Mackey. I don't think that's out either. One was filled at Alula and one was filled up in Tabuk. But both big blockbusters and they should be out at some point. And I suppose when they come out, it'll bring even more attention to the, you know, what Saudi Arabia is trying to sell, which is, which is you know, extraordinary uh, backdrops and, and settings for for films, along with, hopefully, as they develop it, some, you know, the, 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 the people, you know, the technical and the, and the skilled people available to do it. That's the challenge. Um, number. I think this is. Is that me? yours? Yeah. yeah um, Saudi Arabia's first ever astronauts will be heading to the International Space Station, including the first Arab female in space. The astronauts will conduct 20 groundbreaking experiments, including research into predicting and preventing cancer and a study into how, gen how to generate artificial rain cloud seeding in future human settlements on the mood, moon and Mars. Interesting. Ali Al-Karni and Rania Barnawi, members of the inaugural Saudi National Astronaut Program, will be part of the four-man crew Axiom 2 mission to blast off in May from the, from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Richard, you saw, we'll include this, Princess Rima went to go meet them when she was in Riyadh recently. Very cool. Um, yeah, this is fun. Actually, getting into it. So just, just, for, just for the record, I mean, these would be the second and third Mm -hmm. Astro Saudi astronauts to go to space. The first was Sultan bin Salman al Saud, who flew as a payload specialist on a space shuttle mission in 1985. The curious thing about this is, so that was a pay shuttle space shuttle mission, NASA, obviously. So, and those are the only people who fly in this. Axiom, of course, is a private group, and it lets you, you know, things like this really let you jumpstart because the the Saudi Space Commission launched the astronaut program from which these two astronauts are coming from in September 2022. So, I mean, that's less than six months ago. And already there's, you know, they're, they're on a, on a crew flying to the international space station. This is one of the things I love about the 96. So, so, so logically you look at this and they're doing axiom and this is axiom second flight. They did one in uh, April, 2022. They, they, uh, 17 day mission. So, and they're going to be doing three and four. What they're doing is they're taking on the International Space, existing International Space Station, they're using it to build out a, a, a larger private space station that will take over when the ISS, International Space Station, is sort of retired in 2030. So you know, they're taking up all these modules and other things. They're going to be assemble a space station, the private sector space station. And it's funny, I didn't know much about Axiom because you hear about SpaceX and all the other ones. The yeah, that gets ones. all the headlines, yeah. Yeah. And um, But these guys are really doing it. And I'm going to send you this picture. 
they've also been tasked with designing the new the new spacesuits for NASA, which are badass. I'll send you the picture. Send me the pic. Yeah, let's see the let's see the <laughs> thread. Um, uh, it's they're really cool. Anyway, so so uh, you know, neat for Saudi Arabia, and obviously it's a working mission. They're getting a lot of stuff done, but pretty cool that they're part of this Axiom thing. Uh, you know that they they could sign on. And it, interestingly enough, I guess Axiom in the first mission they threw pre, three private citizens, so people who wanted to go to space. But future citizens are really going to be just, you know, skilled and astronauts and, and people, you know, who are trained and tasked for helping build out that private private station. I'm sending this to you now. Yeah, super, super cool. Um, Richard Yella. Oh, this is you. Sorry. Is this me? This is you. Yeah. All right, Saudi. Uh, Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources plans to invest $1.07 billion in specialized local supply chains for small and medium enterprises in the kingdom as part of the Investment Opportunities Initiative, the Saudi Press Agency reported, uh, quoting a ministry spokesperson. Yeah, Richard, I thought this was interesting just because there's so much going into the localization of supply chains and local content. You've got the Sharik program, and then this also ties in SME's role in the supply chains. So, I mean, $1 billion is both a lot of money and in the grand scheme of things, not a lot. But this shows Saudi Arabia's sort of second level of investment into SME supply chains. So get the, getting them to be able to plug in into the economy in this way as they localize things, I just thought this was sort of worthy of mentioning. Um, the ministry, uh, the Minister of Industry and Mineral Resources, Bandar Al-Krayef, um, is pretty impressive. And he's got this, you know, he, first of all, he has a dual mandate because it's mining and then also industry, and they're sort of separate. So, I mean, the industrial development is not necessarily the mining industry. So he's he's got a lot going on, but um, you can see that he's super active. And this is, I mean, this is sort of interesting and I think an important investment will probably be fairly impactful on the economy. Well, it is interesting, and and if you dig down into it, I mean, it, one I thought one of the interesting things when 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 they announced the Riyadh Air, a lot of the discussion was not necessarily about aviation, but about logistics. And you know, they're trying to dig into the, that part of it and value chains, in essence. And and when you dig into this, this is actually, it's a study. They're going to do an investment. And they're going to study 10,000 locally manufactured and imported products and set standards for their associated value chains. A ministry official explained that as many as 100 investment opportunities targeting small and medium factors would be generated, covering several sectors supporting the national industrial strategy, which we've talked about. So, you know, they, they want to expand. This is in, in service of their goals to expand the industrial base to 36,000 factories by 2035. I thought I, I was curious because I, you know, Munshaat is the is responsible for SMEs, so this doesn't really they don't really cross boundaries here. This is really a study that will allow them to get a better handle on all these supply chains. Who's doing what? Um, you know, what's locally manufactured, what's imported, and then to set standards for these. So I guess you know it's it's more easily accessed, it's more uniform, they can track it better, but also it may be more investable. Um, so it is, it, it's like, you know, I, right, before we go out and really pump this up and try and build this, we have to actually get the actual data. 
which I think is interesting um, and useful. And it, it makes good sense. That, that sort of step-by-step thorough approach is, is always welcome. Um, Richard, did you um, make it to be Bon in Riyadh? I can't remember if it was happening or had started when you were there or had Biban Biban was, was was no that was after I I was, was that, that right was after the end yeah. Of, yeah that was the next week that and was you were there though right? I was there it was insane I mean it was it was like the size of leap actually in the same event uh forum building um near Riyadh front just I mean like huge like I don't know how to describe that event size other than like it would take you four hours to walk all the way around it and actually didn't even make that um but just you it just shows you what they're doing with SMEs and how important they are because Richard you and I know since the U.S. Saudi Business Opportunities Forums in 2011 13 and 14 or I may have those dates slightly off but those three forums, SMEs were a huge part of it. They've always really wanted strong SMEs and they've always wanted to have the supply chain get more and more localized, but they're really doing it now. So you can just see that. So um, anyway, really interesting. Richard, yellow number six um, and the final yellow, the Red Sea, Saudi Arabia has been named one of Time Magazine's world world's greatest places 2023. Mabruk to them, quote, a novel adventure. <laughs> Saudi Arabia's bold move, branding a 10,800 square mile tranche, including coastal and desert areas as, quote, the Red Sea, which aims to run 100% on renewable energy, renewable energy, excuse me, and includes an initiative to make the destination the world's largest certified dark sky reserve. All things we knew, but it's very cool to see in Time Magazine sort of get this nod. This is rad. It is. It is a big deal. And it's... um. You know, maybe it's premature in the sense that I don't know these things are ready. I think we just got to notice that, um, you know, they just announced that the, the, the three initial hotels that were supposed to be close to be ready in March will be close, ready closer to the end of 2023. Um, but, yeah, this this speaks to, you know, what they're doing. I mean, they've it, taken, you know, 125 miles, pristine coastline, you know, 90 islands. Uh, they're going, you know, develop only 22 of them and they you know what a destination place and i love this stuff because it's it's the sort of thing the sort of place you can go and veg if you want but i kind of like to do stuff so i mean it's also a place where you can go do a bunch of stuff you can snorkel you can you know you can you know mountain bike you can hike you can you know do all sorts of things um to get closer to the experience so it's um it's pretty neat yeah. And eventually, so so this is interesting. In the first phase, the destination will see 16 hotels and 3,000 keys this year in 2024. 16 hotels. Most of them really, really sweet, sweet, you know. Four seasons, stuff. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the Rose higher end ones, similar playbook, yeah. right? That try yeah. to get that going and then. Exactly. Yeah. I just think it's really cool that the dark sky reserve thing is interesting. Um, There's more and more coming out about how light pollution is just sort of making things, I mean, making the sky just not the same as it was, you know, for people growing up in your generation or for my generation. Um, So it's kind of interesting that they make that a a priority. I mean, it's interesting too. um, Well, we, you know, when I grew up, we didn't have electricity, so it just wasn't a lot of light. Well, right. That's true. The oil lamps, but see the oil lamps, they still provided some localized light. So you couldn't really see up as much. Um, Richard out here in St. Michael's, the stars 
are astonishingly bright. I never had this growing up. And, but it's, it's funny, like when you go to Riyadh and you look up at, at night and you're in downtown Riyadh, really any city, you see zero stars, even if it's clear, cause it's just, there's so much light going on. So just, I, I love that. I think it's so cool. And I feel like that will help you reconnect with nature when you're out there. They're just, they're thinking about things that are, are sort of, you know, they're like new and, and on the cutting edge. I just think that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, it's something. It's, these are destination destination sites, you know, worthwhile going. We talked about Alula. It's worth it, worth going. Mm-hmm. Richard, a good episode 80 here. Thank you very much. Let's get um, back next week. We will have another normal episode back next week. And we didn't have a chance to wish Ramadan Kareem to all of our listeners and viewers. Um, maybe we did actually last well, week. It was right before. So. Also, we uh, we had a nice, you know, in the Sustic review to all our all our friends. We that was included there. Nice work. Yes, yes. So Ramadan Kareem to all of those observing, and we will see you next week, Richard. Thank you.